Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I enjoyed talking about the Dune trailer so much with Jen last week that I made her come back to talk to me <laughs> while Rebecca's out. So she's here against her will. <laughs> hardly, hardly. Hard, f- fear is the mind killer, Jen. Yeah, um, that's right. So uh, we're going to talk about the news. Rebecca's out on break. She'll be back next week. Programming note, next midweek episode coming out uh, next week on Wednesday. Uh, I, I roped Liberty Hardy and Rincey Abrams um, of the the all the books and Red or Dead podcast, respectively, to talk with me about, yeah, Jesse's really wonderful second novel, um, Transcendent Kingdom. For those of you who are homegoing fans, it's not much like homegoing, turns out. There's some similar ideas, similar locations where people are from, but it's a much smaller, more intimate book, um, but still equally wonderful. And yeah, Jesse already was one of my favorite, most exciting writers, but I think she's entered slightly a different terrain because I don't know coming out of this one, she can do anything. I don't know what to expect um, coming from her next. So that was really exciting. had a good conversation about that. Um, we do a few minutes of talk at the top. That's spoiler-free. We also do our content warnings at the top there. So you can listen along for a few minutes if you'd like to have our hear theirs, um, especially general impressions of the book, um, before wanting to read it yourself down the road and come back to it. So you can check that out there. I've got some feedback um, and follow-up to do, but first, before that, let's take a quick sponsor break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jen, you put this into the news channel that we use on Slack earlier today. Rebecca and I talked about it a while ago, and I can't remember when, about Publishers Weekly um, doing a Spanish language edition, mm-hmm. and that has debuted this week. Um, it was debuted this week in Spain. It's the inaugural edition, more than 50 book reviews of Spanish language titles. We were wondering how substantial it would be. 50, I mean, an average week. Do you look at Publishers Weekly at all, Jen? The actual, have you ever done that? When, in even your bookseller days, thumb through a Publishers Weekly issue? Do you have any familiarity with it? Yeah, I I follow them for news, but not for reviews yeah. because I I don't like reviews. No, I understand. <laughs> Dirty I, secret of my public my no, publishing oh, career. Okay, yeah. well, we'll do a whole another podcast uh, episode <laughs> about that someday. But fifty is a good number. That's the a average, lot. it's a lot, but. I should say, in an average regular weekly issue of the American or U.S. or English version, I'm not even sure what they would call it, there's a whole bunch more than that. But still, mm. 50 is plenty of titles. There's probably 50 nonfiction reviews alone um, in an average issue of, of Publishers Weekly that I I don't have one in front of me or I would um, miscount it live to tape. That's good podcasting <laughs> right there. So um, the uh, another note, one of our contributors mentioned that they chose Castilian uh, Spanish, which is more of the European style of Spanish. I guess also that it was released 
um, in Spain tells you that this is not necessarily focused, certainly on Latin and Central America, doesn't mean they're excluded, but the focus seems to be on Europe, published in Spain using Castilian. Interesting there. Neither you or I can say more about that other than note someone else noted it, I <laughs> think, right. at this point. Uh, fascinating to see. I guess I never really thought about this. There's there's often these giant insert ad sections for Chinese publishing enterprises, efforts, whatever. I don't know. I don't exactly, I've never could figure out who the target audience for those giant ad things were. Or like at Book Expo, Jen, like those huge mm-hmm. Chinese pavilions that was no one ever was attending as far as we could tell that were empty and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, it got me wondering what might be next on the Publishers Weekly language list. You know, is, is Chinese, mm. it would make India, China, I, I guess India, there's a large Spanish language population there. So maybe they can leverage some of the English stuff over there. But China, as I've been told, is a pretty big deal in international trade these days, and they buy and sell a lot of books. I don't know the censorship situation. Can they actually review books? Honestly, I don't even know what it would be, but it well, got yeah. me thinking about what would be next for language There's a language of- question there as well. Do you do Mandarin oh, God, or do you Cantonese? Yeah. And right. so... Yeah, yeah that, it's interesting. Yeah. So, interesting to see there. So you can find that. There'll be a link at the show notes, as there always is, um, bookriot.com slash listen. So it, it's fortuitous that um, Jen was available to fill in for Rebecca this week, because I get to do follow-up on a segment you were on last time, which you usually don't get to do, in which I asked our listeners, especially those who have no prior knowledge of Dune... Uh, or a very, very scant knowledge of Dune, to watch the trailer and tell us what they think it is about. I think what was interesting, uh, the, the the people that wrote in, they thought it was beautiful. Hmm. Um, one of them said they didn't get that it was in a desert, necessarily, huh. which I thought was probably related to the climate stuff we were talking about. Like mm. it could have been on a plane or the Serengeti or something like that, of just right. like really overcast. So I guess taken as read for me is that Dune... It's in the name, right? That's the same dune. Um, but also it's so, the visualization is so sand forward, uh, show title, that, um, <laughs> that that I don't even think to notice how much sand is in it because I fill in the gaps. They, but that, I thought that was interesting, Jen. Like, That's the, fascinating. It, and now I need to rewatch it and tell, see if I could, if I like try to look at it with those new eyes and yeah. see, yeah, how much, how much sand. This is like, <laughs> Jeff, this is like, this is like when my friends and I did a measurement of how fast and how furious the last couple oh. of Fast and Furious movies were. You know, we, we measured like how often do they punch a brake pedal and how often do they punch a person? Um, and like now it's as I want to do like how, how Dooney is how the Dune, Dune How many trailer. Dunes did you actually see? How many Dunes in Dune? are in the Dune trailer? This is a question that is important and requires some further research. I guess the title promises a singular Dune. It's not <laughs> Dunes, Jen. <laughs> so if they only have one, they there's won? Only is one, that like they've, yeah. they've fulfilled right. the brief? Is that what it <laughs> That's is? Right. Yeah, there's no false advertising if you get at least <laughs> one Dune and Dunes. Um, I thought it was more the idea of a Dune rather than a specific Dune myself. But that was, I thought maybe the most surprising feedback to me is like where's the sand or is this about sand another one is people think a couple people thinking that it looked more like a horror movie that or that mm. was horror forward and the pain box i guess um, yeah. not i guess they mentioned that specifically is like i think this is too scary for me you know he's got his hand in the box screaming with a knife at his throat i'm like you know what i, I get i can see that right yeah. I, and, and there's people in these unusual costumes and 
um, with stuff in their nose that looked like torture devices. <laughs> um, I think I said off air to you last week after we were done recording, there's something about the nose pieces I always find really uncomfortable to look at. Yeah. I, I, I kind of find myself wanting to blow my own nose and like pull it out of everyone there. So scary. The other one is, and I'm not going to be able to unsee this one, Jen, so I'm sorry. Oh, this no. is your job. That This is Anakin Skywalker is what they, the vibe they were getting from uh, Chalamet's Paul. I uh, I buy it. I, I no, you're right. It's right, yeah, right. I totally get true. that. It's true. Which is not what you want as a comp, I don't think. Uh, in sci-fi these well, days. I mean, which Anakin, right? Like movie Anakin or cartoon Anakin? Hey, hey, I better... think Hayden Christensen's prequel Anakin. The you worst think, one. Or did they say? <sighs> That's a good you question. can't you can't count out the Star Wars universe. No. Because if but, I, I like that, we like the Clone Wars Anakin way more yes. interesting, way better. Yes. Right. Yeah. Agree. Uh, agree. Poor Hayden but, Christensen. I don't think it's his fault for the record. Anyway, oh, okay, no, before we go fault. down that it's road. It's not his fault. Yes. Not his um, fault. But in general, I think this is true. The vibe is very like complicated youth mm-hmm. feelings. Right. 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 So. right. The emo, emo Paul. Emo, emo Paul. Emo Paul. Emo Paul. Emo Paul. That's right. They were listening to the Killers in 2002 <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Which I thought was fair. I guess it's interesting to see, um, in terms of describing the plot, they were pretty close. You know, it's Mm. people trying to get something, and there's other people want it, and the planet's in danger. Um, It's a coming-of-age story, which I think you you suggested is one way. You know, there's there's various ways. Is it internal? Is it external only? Um, Things are going... It got me then thinking about Chalamet as Anakin Skywalker. I want to do Ooh. the other thing. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. As you said, I don't think anyone could have done much with the um, Anakin script for the clo- of, uh, no, Attack of no. the Clones. That's just that's uh, setting everyone up to fail. Um, I did see that Dune is still the number one most viewed movie trailer on... Um, on uh, Apple trailers, it, it gives you a thing of like the most watched. It's the number one has huh. been for a while, which I guess makes sense. I don't know. I don't even know what would compete with it. There hasn't been a huge trailer to come out really since. Um, yeah, and, so many other things know. are postponed, and yeah. so it's you know you you are not even getting trailers for a lot right. of these things. So I think our confidence index in this actually coming out in December has to have been weakened as we saw Black Widow get pushed right. this week. Um, I don't. Do you know the production company of Dune off the top of your head? Is it Paramount or something? It's not a Ugh, Disney property. I don't, I don't pay attention, honestly. So yeah. I don't know because Warner Brothers was uh, the tenant, which is the one, the one big one that's come right. out. And I'm not sure how they're. If it's a Warner Brothers, are they encouraged or discouraged by tenant's performance right now? So I'm not sure. I, I still have. If I were betting a hundred dollars that this is going to come out on the day they say it's going to come out, I think if I have to pick again, I don't like to bet. But if I had to pick one. I think I bet on it getting pushed at this point. We're we we're still entering fall. Cases are going to start rising. I think that's what the best minds. Blah blah blah. I'm not a scientist. I just try to listen to as best I can. I, I think it's going to get a little bit worse as we get into fall, which means this will get pushed. But um, there we are for Dune. Um, any other follow up? I don't think that's it for now. Uh, I guess other programming notes. Rebecca and I are going to talk about Jack by Marilyn Robinson coming up pretty soon. If you want to catch it out, that's not out yet, but it's coming out soon. I'm, the pre pre release reviews are starting to come out. I'm trying to avoid them. Um, people are posting things that I'm trying not to look at about that. 
Sorry, um, guilty. <laughs> no, no, I know. I didn't want to. I, I, that's fine. It's just I'm trying. You can not call to me be, out. It's fine. <laughs> you don't write review, you're posting reviews. You don't even read them. What kind of hypocrisy is that, <laughs> Jen? Sure. Jeez, well, Louise. To be perfectly honest, the only reason I posted that is because I know what big Marilyn Robinson yes. fans you two are. So it's uh, not that I was trolling generally. It's that I was trolling specifically. <laughs> I was. I was trolling you. I apologize. <laughs> And yeah, uh, Dwight Garner has a pre-release review out. Um, I think he's generally pretty good. So whatever, you can go find it if you want. I will not be linking that in the show notes at all at this point. All right, let's get on to news here. Kind of a kind of a light news week. Um, I've got my own noodle here, but I'm going to save that for a little bit. We t- Rebecca and I have talked about um, Dana Kennedy's appointment to um, uh, the head of Simon & Schuster, there's a really good piece with um, by Tanya Garcia in Market Watch, where she talks even more explicitly than some of the earlier interviews she's given at this point about diversity and inclusion in decision making, but also not just. I, I think there is a misconception about you know diver- hiring people from historically marginalized communities being some sort of burden or cost that you have to bear you know because you're being canceled if you don't or something else and Kennedy makes the affirmative case which I believe and I think I've frankly benefited from of you your business is better if you have more voices from different kinds of um, experiences at the table um, diversity of all kinds is a quote here Diversity in the voices we amplify, the books we acquire, the subject matter we go after, and also in staffing, who we systematically look to retain and promote, and bringing new folks into the company. Um, the question that Garcia asked, what have we been missing out on because there hasn't been more diversity? Um, different perspectives aren't about social experiments. It's good for business. If you have more people in the room at a news organization, for example, that don't all look alike, you're going to get different perspectives on your reporting. If you're in the products business, business tap into markets that might have been ignored or overlooked. You really miss out on maximizing your business in all areas at all levels if you don't have diversity. And I'm so glad that this is something that she's saying out loud from the position she has now, because I think it's true. I think you do better, especially if you operate in a diverse marketplace, which in America you do, if you've got people there from a whole bunch of different perspectives, the more the better and the more diverse, the better. So um, go check that out. Jen, was there anything else in that interview that struck out to you? It's not super long, and I don't want to. I want to leave some meat on the bone because I think it's worth reading writ large. But what else? Anything else strike you in that interview? Yeah, uh, I mostly I was glad to see her saying that because this has been an argument for years. I mean, probably yeah. decades at this point. Especially I've seen it more often in Hollywood that you know you're mm. leaving money on the table yeah. if you're not. You are really not max. Like she says, you're not maximizing your business. Like you're not reaching all of the markets you could reach because you literally don't know how. Mm-hmm. And publishers have literally said this to authors for years, like, well, I don't know how to market your book, like to people who are coming from marginalized or minority communities. And it's like, okay, but like, you could learn, <laughs> right, you could right. hire people who do, and then you could make that dollar. Like mm. it shouldn't, I mean, we live in a capitalist society, so money has to be part of the conversation. Like obviously, there's it diversity benefits everybody in all ways right. but truly if you are a for-profit business you are leaving money on the table so it's nice to see somebody say that certainly mm. especially somebody who's in a position to make those changes about hiring um no the thing that uh, honestly cracked me up about this interview was there's this bit uh farther down where uh garcia asks her about amazon 
Oh, yeah. And, and mm-hmm. she says, uh, you know, oh, how do you, you know, the question is, how do you feel about Amazon? Is it a good thing for publishing? Is it a bad thing? And, you know, Kennedy says, uh, we sell a heck of a lot of books on Amazon and Amazon is our friend. That's my initial response. Mm. And then goes on to say, I need to spend more time in the industry and understand financially where we are. Like she acknowledges that, like, this is my initial response, but like, perhaps there's things I don't know. And I just kind of want to, I'm just like chin hands over here waiting to like waiting for Dana Kennedy to find out all of the ways in which the Amazon relationship is complicated. So I, I look forward to her future comments on Simon Schuster's relationship with Amazon. I mean, it's, it seems to be a kind of a golden handcuff situation at this point with Amazon and publishing. Like it is, we sell a hot dog on Amazon, Amazon, our friend, caveat is like yes. that and that's my that's i think that is a really structurally representative response right mm-hmm. um and fair i mean in, in i mean yeah sell a lot of heck of books on amazon would they prefer if those same books were bought other places is not the question not not that right. it could be you know like it's not that easy but all yeah. things being equal do we like that this is that we sell do you like that you sell a heck of a lot of book on amazon right. is actually a, a, a separate question so go check uh, that piece out. I think it was really, really interesting. You know, um, talk. I was thinking about in terms too. We used to have on this show discussions and responses to pieces that has this old saw about the talent pipeline and meritocracy, and that's why there's not as many inclusive voices and blah 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 and all these garbage arguments. And so you don't want it, to. It's sad to some degree to have to say it makes business sense and that's mm-hmm. the reason like if that's the thing that gets someone turned around i guess it's better than turned around than not but it's also sort of sad it's like it's like saying something so, well now that i have a daughter you know that kind of talk yes. at the same time yeah it's sad um but i guess i'll take it if it if it actually makes differences but talk about a change from gosh we're on episode 402 we were just talking about so rebecca and i've been doing this show for almost 6 years at this point and to see the National Book Foundation's list of five under five honorees all be from historically marginalized communities in America is really incredible. And also not to be surprised by it, maybe is even the more incredible thing at this point, Jen, I think that like to see that this is what the thing is and it kind of doesn't go remarked upon. I guess I'm remarking on how it doesn't go remarked upon, which which (laughs) maybe is diffusing. But you know what I'm getting through here? Like it's kind of... I kind of want to take a moment to appreciate that this has happened and people have, this has happened is a passive voice, which I think doesn't take into account. We talked about Lisa Lucas has done a lot of work at the yes. National Book Foundation. A lot of people all over the place have done a whole heck of a lot of work. Congratulations and well done. May your efforts succeed to everyone. But the results is a list like this, which is an exciting list, um, an up and coming list. I've only read um, C. Pam Zhang's How Much of These Hills is Gold, which is one of the nominees here. Um, I'll just run them. Well, is there another one that you, have you read any of these, Jen, or do you know anything about it, the other ones? Yeah, about some of them. I've read some of Bestiary okay. by Kaming Chen, which is brutal for the record. Uh-huh. I had to put it down because I'm not in the right space for it, but yeah. it's brilliantly written. And I'm not honestly seeing that Justin Torres was the selector doesn't yeah. surprise me because his amazing book oh was also God. quite brutal. Right. Uh, yes. But I just wanted to point out momentarily that the selectors are also all folks yeah, of color point. from marginalized communities, right? We got Susan Choi, who's amazing, Marlon James, Terry Jones, Tommy Orange, Justin Torres, like all 
fantastic authors with solid careers, you know, who are doing mm-hmm. good things in the literary world. And so, you know, we've got it's like, you know, a, a nice moment of turtles all the way down. Yeah, like, right, right, right. Here we go. Like, this is what a diverse jury looks like. This is what, you know, an inclusive honoree list looks like. It's mm-hmm. very it is. It's very exciting that also it should not be. This should just be how it is. Like it should. Yeah. It should not be a surprise that this is possible. No, and that no. it's happened. Yeah. No, it's a great point. I'm. I'm glad. I'm glad that it's unre- I'm glad that it's sort of unremarkable in a way. Yeah. But I'm glad. I'm remarking on my gladness of it. I, I don't know. I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm. I'm twisting myself into knots. Maybe people can understand. We have a lot of I'm feelings about it. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Um, Raven by. Um, so the the. You said Bestiary by Kaming Chang. Um, Name a Coster's Halsey Street, which I really want to read, mm. uh, but I haven't gotten around to yet on here. Raven Lilani's Luster was kind of an it book for a hot minute, I yes. feel like. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what the legs have been like in terms of sales. I haven't seen that many people talking about it, but in all fairness, I'm not on social media that much. I'm also not in the world that much. I don't know what I would... It's not. Here's where it's not showing up. It's not showing up like vanishing half or um, mexican gothic or some of the other it books that i've seen this summer on like the top 50 hardcover fiction list so i guess that's what i'm saying mm. when i haven't seen it as much so take that for what you will um fatima mirza's a place for us which is not some, a book i'd heard about before i mean i'd seen the name like blow by as i'm looking through stuff but i don't know anything about it um that's out from random house and then see peng zang's how much of these hills is gold which i really liked ping random house ping random house mcmillan Amazon Publishing, Random House. Yeah. We know this, you know. Um, yeah. Well, it's three different sure imprints. It's One World, it's uh, SJP for Hogarth, and then Riverhead, yeah. right? So there's right. Uh, there's there's a, there's a little bit of Penguin in there and a little bit of Random House in there. Um, is is Hogarth Penguin? Is it Team Orange? Is they fall under Penguin, do you know? <sighs> I can never remember which one Hogarth is. I know Riverhead is Penguin, and I know yeah, One Riverhead World is, is Random House. Right, so, right, right, right. Yeah. I, I don't, is this Little A's first 535 honoree, I wonder? Is this the first question. Amazon person to come from this? I don't know off the top of my head. Historically, I don't know that Amazon has had a winner of a National Book Award, Pulitzer Prize in fiction. So I think there's a chance this is probably the highest profile award, a literary title um, an American literary title, Amazon Crossing, does uncles a wonderful work in, work in translation, but an American mm-hmm. title um, selected by Terry Jones um, there. So go check that. If you're looking for debut authors to read, we get some questions from time to time about how to find diverse authors and from marginalized voices. Here's a list of early career people that probably even these people aren't selling a whole bunch of books. That's the other thing you should say. Do not think because they got this $1,000 prize and some knock-on book sales. These are people in the beginning of their careers, um, and the die is still to be cast for how it's going to go. So, Also, SJP for Hogarth, Rebecca and I are always curious about the future histories of celebrity imprints. Mm-hmm. That's Sarah Jessica Parker's. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what you would call it. It's, it's not an If it's for Hogarth, it's not her own imprint. It's her corner. It's sub her imprint. Her, her sub <laughs> domain. I, I don't even know at this point. Um, but fascinating to see that uh, pop up there as well. So there we go. Let's take another sponsor break and we'll do some more news. Mm, all right. You know, I, I think of you as a resident bookseller, but those are that's less and less true, right? I mean, that's I'm, I'm not saying that, but that's true, right? You're you're not as much of a bookseller these days as you weren't. Are you plugged into the world of bookselling anymore? 
Yeah, I still have a lot of friends who own bookstores. Yeah. Well, who, it's which weird to say now that that's where we're at in our careers because oh, we were yeah. all, you know, baby booksellers at cons uh, mm-hmm. in the early days. And now, yeah, th- I'm thinking of three friend, good friends of mine who own bookstores, which is wild. Um, yeah. No, four. Make it four. Uh, so I and I talk to them semi regularly, if not mm-hmm. regularly. So I'm I'm still hearing a bunch of stuff about. Uh, book selling and uh, you know i i swing by my local i don't volunteer there anymore because right. time has no meaning and also that's not mm-hmm. a thing i can do right <laughs> now but um but i do swing by and check in with them and you know uh, but i am i haven't been a bookseller since 2015 right. at this right. point which is which feels wrong but is true yeah so. anyway I still, you're more of a bookseller than I am, I guess. At least, it's very, very fair to say. I thought this was an interesting piece, also in Publishers Weekly. This is from Alex Green about um, a diversity reading initiative of how do you say that? What's the do, do people say NEIBA or do they say NEBA or what? They, what say, they say NEBA. NEBA is the is the northeastern because there's also the New Atlantic, which is NEBA. So NEBA <laughs> is the New England. Yep. Uh, that's funny. Um, yeah. And Rebecca and I have talked in time about the role in the place of independent bookstores and bookselling and of course in the wider bookselling world, but especially around promoting titles from marginalized voice from marginalized authors and how they can be the particular strength, but also limitations of independent booksellers in this conversation, because they don't have the scale that other places do maybe even including this show, for example, but they're much closer to the metal in terms of actually getting books into people's hands. So how can you, leverage what you do well. And this is an uh, initiative that basically it sounds like a contest where they're getting booksellers in their on your honor. It's like the book at pizza program. Like it's on your honor to read books by BIPOC authors. Um, and then you can get, you know, entered for a prize or a trip or something like that. But the, I think the essential insight, which I think is fascinating here is the books booksellers are reading influences the books they are selling, which once, once I kind of put that together, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Am I right? I mean, how do you uh, kind of evaluate that? Does it make sense to you as something that booksellers can do that's within the flow of their normal lives, but also outside of it in terms of getting them to books to read books they had wouldn't otherwise read? Or am I or am I or am I wrong to be think this is interesting? No, it, it is interesting. I think it's also long overdue. Um, I do mm. want to point out that it's both BIPOC and disabled writers uh, oh, in different yes. genres. So that's I think that's you know that's a diversity box that often does not get spoken mm-hmm. of. Um, and so that's worth bringing up. And obviously there's lots of intersections for those. But um, yeah, you know, because you can... So it's interesting, right? Because a good bookstore owner obviously cannot read all of the books no. that they order in, right? They right. have to order in a vast selection based on all kinds of factors, what they think is going to sell, what's getting recommended to them, what's on their radar, what their publisher pitches successfully, blah, 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 blah. So... You know, no bookstore owner has read all of the books on their shelves. It's just not possible. Nor have they even read most of the books that are maybe going to be in stacks Mm. on their shelves. However, the books that your staff have read are the ones that have staff pick. That's right. Little thingies on them. They're the ones that often will get a stack that might not otherwise have. Like if the publisher didn't Mm -hmm. invest marketing dollars, you know, it's not going to get a stack. But if somebody at the bookstore, especially an owner, loves that book, you're going to get a stack of it. And books that are in stack sell. This is just a rule. If you have a stack of books, Hmm. that book is more likely to sell than a single copy. It's just true. Um, And 
And so, because you know, people think, oh, there's a stack of them. It must be good, right? Like, why else would you have a stack of this book? So, uh, which is why, you know, publishers pay Barnes & Nobles to put right. stacks of books on their front tables. Like, those are all paid-for placements. It's often not true for independent bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, uh, so much of what I loved about book selling is hand selling. So where somebody comes in and says, oh, I'm looking for something. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. And then you go to your database and you think about like, okay, what, what, what do I love? What might they love? You know, what have I heard about? But like, honestly, the books that I loved, I would sell those books to people whether or not they wanted it. You know, like the number of copies that I sold of Gone Away World, like back in the day, (laughs) nobody asked me for that book, but I sold it. And the same is true of, you know, N.K. Jemisin's book back before she won all the Hugos. Like we were hand selling the bejesus out of her Dreamblood duology at Word because we loved it, you know, and like. It wasn't because it was on a list. It wasn't because the publisher was pushing it. Like, it's just because we loved it. And, you know, that is the kind of thing that can happen. And so when I say this is long overdue, you know, independent booksellers also do things like nominate books for the Indie Next list. Mm. And those lists sometimes are inclusive and sometimes they're not. And it's because they are largely based on what people are sending into the, you know, to, to the ABA, um, the American Bookseller Association, who, you know, collate the reviews and pick the top ones and then make a beautiful flyer and send it out to all these bookstores who then order stacks of that book. So, like, it is a cycle and it can be a virtuous cycle, but you have to read the books. Yeah. Um, and so when I say it's long overdue, like, people should be doing this anyway. They should have been doing it for years. But it is really good to see... Neba, you know, incentivizing it. Uh, it may, it's a bummer that it needs to be incentivized, yeah. but it is good that it is happening. So, and I guess the prize, I'm trying to remember, it was like a free night, a free hotel night. A drawing to thing. Like, say. it's pretty marginal yeah. as these things go, I guess. Um, but if you're open to it, it might be kind of like Book Riot's own Read Harder Challenge, yes. which like... You're, it gives you a structure for something that you want to do, but maybe you need to just get over the hump to, yeah. to make it happen, you know, like a yes. New Year's resolution or something like that. It gives you That's a little right. bit of a peg to hang it on. I guess I've thought about this before. My one hand-selling experience, Jen, was actually in front of you. Um, oh. When we did, you probably don't remember, we had a launch party for the print version of Start Here Volume 2 at oh, I Word remember. way back in the day. <laughs> and you told us... Because it was me and Rebecca, and I think we had a couple other Book Riot people there. I don't actually remember. You said, as part of like supporting the bookstore and like paying for the event, you know, pick out a book to to talk about that mm. we have in stock, and talk about it because we'll sell the book. We'll sell out of right. the book, right? And you even said, make sure it's one we have more than one copy of. I remember mm. this distinctly. So I had a couple things in mind coming into the store, and I don't remember. I, I guess I must not have asked or wouldn't have known what you had in stock. So I had a couple titles on my list. And I think you had four copies of Open City by Teju Cole, and that was oh, one on yeah. my list. And so I talked about it for 45 seconds, and they sold out like that after it was yep. over. They just needed, and it really has always stuck with me about how powerful and focused that really is. And so when I see something like this, I, I always think of like, that was Teju. If that had been Don DeLillo, it would have been Don DeLillo. They would have sold five right. copies of Don DeLillo, but it happened to be. I like Teju Cole. I'm not sure that I picked it intentionally because he's a black writer. I just like, I, I, I might have. I honestly don't remember. But there's a replacement value. They're going to buy it. The pipeline matters 
mm-hmm. there. And I hadn't thought about the ordering stack situation because what yeah. the owner like there's discretionary piles, right? Show title yeah. where you know you're gonna have the <laughs> you're gonna have the best sellers. You have the ones you want people to ask about, but then there's this tax of you have latitude to pick this versus that for that pile, mm-hmm. right? And so it affects ordering, which I hadn't even thought of in those terms. Do you have a sense? This is super unfair, Jen. I'm so sorry. And if, okay. if, you, if you can't if you can't answer, I totally get it. In terms of how the buyers for independent bookstores read. Are they reading largely to decide what to keep in stock? Are they reading for pleasure and then they decide which of those? Like how much is instrumental? How much of his personal? And is there any kind of, I don't know, is there any kind of like template for the kind of reading people do or research people do even? Because I don't even read, they don't even have, they can't even read the things to keep in stock. Right. About like how much of it is that sort of discretionary versus market driven as they perceive it uh, of their own reading? Well, so I, I will caveat this with I've never been a buyer, but I've yeah, been around right. a lot of buyers. That's, that's um, what I was hoping you would say that you've, so, you've seen. You've seen tell. You've seen I've her. seen tell. Yes, yeah. you're right. Um, so if you're a buyer, I think I feel very comfortable saying that like 95%, if not more, of your reading is instrumental, as you said. It is a, okay. It is geared towards what new books are coming out that I need to order. Mm. And then the other thing you're doing is you're looking at your inventory patterns, like what what sections are right. you selling well out of? What sections are you not selling well out of? What are you running out of space? What have you done a lot of returns on? Um, so you're looking to see, you know, what titles are selling, what titles are not selling. You're looking for comps in mm. the catalog. And your reps, you know, your publishing reps are telling you, you know, they often have very good relationships with the stores that they visit and they know what works for different stores. You know, what works for the King's English in Salt Lake City is not going to work for Word Brooklyn and what works for Word Brooklyn is not necessarily going to work for Word Jersey City even. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the reps have, if they're good reps, which most of them are, they have a good sense of what that store's, you know, readers are buying, what the staff like, and they will come to you with those titles first when when you have your buying appointments. Um, Or they'll, you know, send along those galleys. So, and then, you know, they're, they're ta- they talk to their staff, you know, they know what their staff are excited about. Um, and, you know, sometimes they have like a good buyer has like this really amazing sort of sixth sense. Because let me tell you, buying is really hard. I can only imagine. It's so hard to do well. Mm-hmm. And it's it's fraught because, you know, you can return the books, but it's not an insignificant cost to have the books come in, put them out, and then have them not sell and then have yeah. to return them. Like Cause it could have been a different, better selling pile, right? That yeah. underselling pile is not just that it undersold, but it could have exactly. been a better selling pile, right? The opportunity yeah. so, cost is And the time to see. involved yeah. in the staff, the pulls take mm-hmm. time, the returns take time and money. I mean, it's just a whole thing. So, you know, they want to do as little returning as possible, but they also want to take chances. You don't only want to order stuff that's going to be on the bestseller list. Cause then you're just Barnes and Noble. Like why that's not what people are coming to you. So, you know, you have to try to, get a a cross section of, you know, some risky stuff, some stuff that you feel pretty confident about, some stuff you know is going to do well. Um, So yeah, that's, that's sort of how buying works. It's like investing. Like you, you you have your S&P 500, you know, you kind of know, all right, that's, it doesn't take a lot of thought to stock the, the new James Patterson book and whatever else is coming out in that guard. But then it's the marginal ones where you don't necessarily know that you are making a bet, not sometimes in actual dollars, but some more in speculation work, because you can return it, as you say. But like, if you get it wrong, if you sell 50 copies rather than, 
or, or 10 copies rather than 50 of a book, that's a huge difference over time. It mm-hmm. seems like an extremely different book. I, I do remember feeling sympathy walking through BEA and seeing those sort of bookseller one-on-ones where someone's got a giant catalog. Yeah. And I'm always excited about everything when I see it in the catalog. <laughs> That's just something like, I think of it as like the Sears like toy catalog on Christmas right. times. Like, these all look great. These are all going to sell. I'd be terrible. I'd be a horrible yeah. stock picker when it comes to buying books. Right. But they also have experience. They've seen, they have enough scars, I mm-hmm. guess, to, to know. Um, in terms of thinking about how else to incentivize, encourage, require, whatever it might be, it's such an ad hoc system for booksellers, book buyers on ind- in the independent bookstore world. I'm not even sure what else you could do to to raise the percentage of books by BIPOC and differently abled people. Um, because it's like that's sort of it's so discretionary and untrackable. Like it'd be so creepy. I don't know what you'd. Ha- I don't know. I don't even know what else you would do at this point except I mean, availability. It- it's systemic. The books have yeah. to be in the catalogs. They right. have to be there to order in the first place, right? So we need publishers to publish them. Right. And then the sales teams have to get behind them. Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, the reps need to push them. They need to get marketing dollars, you know. And booksellers and librarians have to read them and get excited about yeah. them. Like it's right. it has to and and readers, you know, then get the benefit of all of that, but it it has to go all the way through yeah. the chain. You yeah. can't any one, you know, piece of that chain, you can't do it without the other pieces. Right. Yeah, the the any break in the any broken link breaks the whole chain essentially yep. to get it to readers. Great. That was really interesting. Um, we're going to take a break and we're going to almost be done, but Jen dropped the Heroes of the Weekend, so we're going to do that before we get out of here. All right, Jen, you dropped this in, so tell me about it. Yeah, so I saw this in PW this morning. Uh, it's from Calvin Reed, and it is about an artist relief uh, fund that has distributed $13.5 million in pandemic grants, mm. which is... A lot of money and actually not that much money when you think yeah. about both it. Of this, it's both, both can be true, right? Both can be yes, true. Yes, both yeah. can be true. So it launched in April, um, and Artists Relief is specifically a fund created to assist artists struggling in the pandemic. Um, and they are actually, they had planned to stop at a certain point, but they're extending grant distribution through the end of the year. Um, mm. And they've raised nearly $20 million since their launch, which is not, you know, again, not a small amount of money. Um, lots of different uh, funding partners the Andrew Mellon Foundation, um, the Poetry Foundation, lots of others. And they've raised nearly a million dollars from individuals. Mm. And and I love that they're these are unrestricted grants. Yep. Like you don't have to do a specific thing to get this grant. Um, and they're, this is like from an organizational standpoint, because I always, of course, I'm thinking about logistics. Uh, <laughs> they, they've, it says here that they've distributed uh, unrestricted grants of $5,000 to artists about the rate of 100 per week. Mm. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of grants to distribute in a week when you think about logistics. That's amazing. Mm. Um and it also says here that the selection process for deciding who gets those grants has been structured to address problems of access faced by disabled artists, people of color, and low-income communities. So it's, I mean, I actually had not heard of this foundation before I saw this story this morning. And I was like, really, this is just one of those moments of your day where you're like, oh, people are out there doing the thing. This is so inspiring. Um, And I love also that they're distributing a survey, an impact survey for artists Hmm. and creative workers to understand the impact of the pandemic on the artistic Hmm. community. So not only are you giving people money, but you're getting data. It's like, it's like all of my favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Giving money to artists and you get juicy, juicy spreadsheets out. Of it, Jen. It's a win-win for you. 
None of this is theory. about me, obviously, but well, I'm delighted by this. You can like so, it without it being I can about like you. It. That's fair. Yeah. Um, major donors, the Andrew Mellon Foundation, Joan Mitchell Foundation, the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation, the Herb Alpert Foundation. Herb Alpert's stealthily one of the richest people in arts of all time. Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass sold a lot of records, but also really into... Um, Music licensing and rights, really smart oh. about that. So there's a, Herb Alpert, is one of those sneaky, influential people. I was interested to see when his name pops up. The Poetry Foundation and others. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes here where you can read more about it. Also, you can find this is something that maybe you or someone you know might be eligible for. Um, it looks like the, they're still getting some money, so there might still be grants available. Um, so if you have some time and you have some need and you know someone might benefit from, please do pass along. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for uh, finding that one. See, you thought that you were worried we were going to have enough to talk about. Like, do we need to put anything else in here? And here we are, 45 minutes. A nice, tight, interesting 45 minutes. Just what we want. Awesome. That was Jen, a lot of fun. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thank you.